0: It was a good film, but it sat on the shelf for a long time because people didn't know what to do with it. And I think Dazed and Confused is one of the highlights of my career, although the director hated the poster of the stoned happy face. Bill Clinton had come out and said, I didn't inhale.
1: I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale.
0: My thought was finally a movie for anyone who did inhale. that <laughs> <Da>, that <da. laughs>
2: This is Film Schooled. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Film Schooled podcast. Samantha, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. You have a very powerful story. You've worked on some amazing projects and with some really recognizable companies within the film world and in the music world. But I want to go back really to the beginning. And one thing that stands out to me about your story is just how transparent you've been in sharing your journey. So take me back to early childhood and kind of those first formative memories for you.
0: I uh, grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, and my mother took our family of five girls back to the farm after splitting up with my dad. And it was the farm where she grew up in Pennsylvania. And we were going to live with my grandfather and grandmother who would help her take care of us. And within less than six months of my arrival on the farm, I wasn't even five years old yet. I started to be abused by my grandfather. And I didn't really understand what what it meant. I didn't really understand what was happening to me, but I knew it wasn't. It made me uncomfortable. It wasn't right. It, it didn't feel right. By the time I was about eleven years old, I say in the book, I knew what it meant to hate, <laughs> and I hated him. And the abuse continued, and of course got worse. And finally, I ran away when I was age fourteen, and I went. Looking for my dad, he was a someone I knew as only as wild Bill, which is what we the moniker he had right. and uh, and it's interesting because my mother was very religious Oops, I apologize. My mother was a very religious person and uh, and but she taught us to call our father refer to our father as it a pronoun, not even a person. It was a very sort of confusing time, my childhood, because on the one hand, I'm being taught the Ten Commandments, love thy, honor thy father and thy mother, but then I'm being taught, but call him it. So it was a very confusing time. And I think a lot of young girls do idolize their fathers when there's a breakup in a marriage. And it's a very perplexing kind of thing to explain, but I, I think it's just natural that the other parent seems like they must be the good one. Yeah. So I, I did get, I finally got in touch with him. One of the many letters I wrote got through, and he said, "Sure, come on out, come out to Phoenix, Arizona, where I live, and everything will be great." And so I went, and when I got there, he basically told me, "You can't live with me. There's no room." At the end, so to speak, sure. uh, he was remarried and he had already adopted a young girl that he had with a mistress so that his wife had a child. His new wife had a child. He had a, a child out of wedlock with someone who passed away. So there was no room for a 14 year old girl. And so I, he helped me, he did help me get enrolled in high school. And then I was completely on my own and I graduated high school early. I fought like hell to get through and took on many personas. who used a ph- ph- phony ID to get a job, to waitress, serving alcohol and went on some crazy adventures growing up. And, and then I found myself in Los Angeles and, mm. Where a lot of other, I'm trying to think on my feet, figure out how I can survive basically. And I ended up becoming a backgammon hustler, which is, you have to read the book to track how that all happened, but it's a a funny story and how to play. Even
2: you say, and when I've heard you in other interviews, and it is crazy reading through all the different experiences you had before really even getting out of your teen years, Like you even mentioned in an interview, like it was hard for you to believe that all these different things had happened, that you took on so many different roles and personas over those years.
0: Completely. I I think one to really understand, like I tried to write the book from the perspective of this young girl as she was going through these experiences, because I wanted people to understand this profound peculiarity is how optimistic I was despite all of these horrific things that were happening to me, I, I stayed focused on my own self-preservation. And even when I put my, I would have periods of time where I'd, I'd say, what difference does it make? What do I have? My mantra became, what do I have to lose? Because I have nothing. Nobody cares about me. There's no search party out looking for me. So if I die in the gutter today, who cares? Who's really going to care?
2: I'm curious where that comes from, because there's many people who, not quite your situation, but have been in situations where they feel that emotion of if I were to die tonight, who cares? Or if I don't succeed, what did I, what else do I have to lose? I'm, I'm at that, you know, proverbial rock bottom. What do you think it was in you that turn that into some sort of optimism or fuel as opposed to what I think many people would let it do, which is, okay, I'm just going to quit. What's the point of moving forward? What's the point of pursuing something big? Uh, Because you did, you took these extremely traumatic situations that would justify not even could slow you down, justifiably could give you an excuse to not pursue anything bigger than what you were handed. Where do you think that came from or or where do you think that self- starting motivation came from
0: I think it was a combination of things. I think it was a confluence of emotions. When I sent my my graduation invitation to my mother, I really hoped she would come. Like I was so proud of myself. And of course it was disappointing when she didn't come, but then it was like I was glad she wasn't there to see my father make an ass of himself because he I hadn't seen him in six months and he showed up at my graduation, so mm. drunk and cliched and all that. But I think that it was always like I wanted to prove to people that despite that despite what happened to me, I wasn't going to let it defeat me for for example, the book that we're referring to is called Blind Pony." Mm -hmm. As true a story as I can tell. And I called it that because I really built the book around the idea that my grandfather gave me. He assigned horses and ponies to all my sisters and I, according to our size. Mm. He gave me the blind pony. And she was only blind in one eye, but she was a show pony. And her eye was kicked out by another horse. And it was caved in, and it was so awful to look at. You had to look away. It was just really ugly. And I feel like he gave me that pony as a a bit of a control move. Like, I wasn't worthy. And that was how he could keep me trying to make myself worthy of, I don't know, of his love. It's very complex in these situations. But I think that pony taught me a lot about grace and fear. She shied away from a lot of things. I had to be her eyes when I rode her because she couldn't see you know, peripheral vision. And for a horse, that's really important. And so there were many times I was thrown off her. She'd spook and I'd get thrown. I broke my arm, my leg, my hip. <laughs> Growing up, I was always in a cast of some sort. But, but I think that experience really taught me a lot about even if you're damaged, you're still valuable. You're still mm-hmm. worth something. And yeah. and it's about finding the right people where you belong, if that makes sense. And yeah. so I kept searching, I think, for where I belonged. And I tried my best to mitigate any more damage, although I kept stepping in it again and again. And some people are like, have told me they're screaming at me in the book. Like they're yelling, like, no, don't do it. Don't go there. It's stupid. Right. I was a kid and I had absolutely no life skills. I didn't know. I, I grew up on a farm. I didn't even know what a shower was. We had one bathtub for, for bathing eight people.
1: Right. And
0: we didn't have, we had, it was very, it was a very unusual situation it was beautiful in many ways, though, because it was a beautiful acres and acres, as far as the eye could see, was our land and the horses and the ponies and the wildflowers and all of the you know things that are seared into my memory that I cherish and I find so beautiful. I think that those feelings just lived inside of me. And I went to some very dark places along the way, though. I detail it in the book i got very involved in drugs when before i was out before i outgrew my training bar bra i tried lsd unbeknownst to me someone put it in some wine i was drinking but what business did i have drinking wine at yeah. 11 years old i'm 12 years old It it's just i think it's i think my experiences now looking back and the only way I was able to write this book is because I'm such a great mom. I have three children yeah. and I couldn't be more proud of them. They're all so unique and special. And I've broken a cycle of pain that has mm. haunted my family for years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, uh, you look at your story and yeah, you, as, as someone just hearing the story, you're going stop, like one thing into another. There is when you're looking at someone who's been through a trauma and you, you don't have an anchor or a person to who's offering that guidance, where those roles typically would be, you're just out trying to find your place in the world. And that's a scary, it, that's scary when you do have all those normal anchor points and you do have a non-traumatic right. relationship, but teenage life without those guardrails is even scarier. And going into the young adulthood, did you have a sense of where you wanted to be? Like when you were, when you would sit there? No,
0: never. I never, at one point when I was young, I was very, this view started so young for me that it was all I really knew about how, you know, about interpersonal relationships. And yeah. it, it, so it really affected me. Like it caused me to be very like obsessive compulsive. And yeah. like, for example, i would I loved to rearrange furniture, my family would go out somewhere and they'd come back and I've hoisted and moved all these big antiques all around and redecorated the house and i used and they they would just be like, "How did you move that they'd be right. but I had this will and determination even when I was this little girl and and I think that was one could call that a budding. Interior decorator, and I'm obsessed with houses and flipping them and you know, right. decorating and all that now. So, we all have these creative seeds that live inside of us, and it's our parents' place to pull them out and see them grow, right? right. Uh, or help us pull them out of ourselves. But I think I was always very creative, and so I grew up you know, feeling those creative feelings and feeling like what made what, but I think it was like. It, it was the adrenaline rush of picking up that piece sure. of furniture or sh- that I was going for. And it was something to dull the pain. Or I used to go out in the snow barefoot and turn my lip upside down and make this crazy face. Call- I called the frozen Seymour and my sisters would burst out laughing and I did it for the attention, but also I did right. it because I wanted to freeze myself. I wanted to feel numb and so drugs were a very easy way to get there, weren't they? And right. at one point when I really hit rock bottom with the, the drugs and, you know, completely decided, I think I was about 18 years old, just that this is not for me. I don't ever want to do drugs again. That's it. And I walked away from that. It was really like the lowest point for me and that level. I said to myself, it was worth it. It was worth all of it all the pain I went through, I lost a baby. I got hooked on drugs. I did all these crazy things, but it was worth it because it made me forget about one thing, my -hmm. grandpa. And so I was substituting other pain or destructive behavior for this pain. And so I, I didn't know how to heal that pain. How would I know? I think had I been at 17, and eighteen, I started to grow up. I started to naturally go around that bend. It's at fourteen, you really are such a baby. You really right. don't know well. how to parent yourself. And I did know one thing. I knew I had to be careful and protect myself because I could get picked up and put into a juvenile home or sure. something. And that frightened me more than anything, being caged up. But like hitchhiking around Black Canyon Highway in Arizona, I could have been so many times tossed on the side of the road like a piece of garbage. But by the grace of God, that never happened to me. I just, I was very lucky. I wouldn't advise anyone to have... The philosophy I had which was what's the worst that could happen or do I have to lose I would put myself in these precarious situations I'd say what do I have to lose but then when I grew up and I got my stuff together it made me fearless I would walk into a, I walked into a film studio for example and said I wanted the job as creative director and he said what makes you think you're qualified for the creative director and I said said, because I'm creative and I, you know, I have a track record in the in the music world at that point. And he said, you don't know what an inner positive is or an inner negative and blah, blah, blah. He's throwing all this lingo around. And I said, I can read books. And yeah. he hired me. And I think that confidence in that spirit of what do I have to lose did serve, end up serving me eventually because I never worried about I ne- I was fearless. I I, I I said, if I don't get the job, I don't get the job. People have asked me in my book, what was the, my book? It was something I had to do. Mm-hmm. It was like my confessional. Like I had yeah. to, I I had to write this book because I had to really make you know sense of my life and. Yeah and give, my, give my life more meaning in a way. And I was terrified because I don't have a college education. I'm self-taught with everything. And I wondered, you know, will people like it. And when I first put it out for review and it came back with a rave review, I said, well, maybe it's okay. And then I thought, what about my clients? Because I do have a can, you know, business I run. I thought, oh, they're going to hate me. They're going to find out that I was a heroin addict, and I was this, right. and I was that, and I was a little terrified about that. But I think that the empathy and from the people that that care about me has been really unique and wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade that for anything. The right. few people that sort of snub their nose at me, she's exactly who we thought she was or whatever. I don't really care about those people to be yeah. honest because I've found that being my authentic self is the best thing I can be.
2: That's so huge. I talk about that all the time. Like I mentioned before we hit record, like i I do another podcast dealing with topics of abuse within with by clergy which is i always joke when it comes to to getting podcast sponsorships that's not a it's not a dream show for a coca-cola to sponsor the church abuse show but i've i've realized that there are always going to be when you step into topics that are controversial or raw or heavy like the topics you cover bravely in your book and in podcast interviews the people who are important and the people who do truly care. It's only going to draw them closer. And I think the people that do turn their noses up and do cut ties, like they weren't true friends or true family to begin with. They're people who the relationship was built on a a misconception about who you were or what they wanted you to be. And so I, I love what you say about being your true authentic self. I think that's so important. I'm curious, you mentioned like that creative bug and and that desire to be creative. And I've heard you mention that was there from the very, very beginning. When you first stepped into the role at Geffen Records and working with David Geffen and, and doing that, did you feel like something really clicked into place? Did you feel like that was the first time that you really locked into, okay, this is where I can shine. This is where my gifts really...
0: I had been at uh, Wyndham Hill before that. I was recruited to go to Geffen um, based on what I had done at Wyndham Hill. And I was on the A&M lot. And that's where I really learned production, record production. But you're right. When I got the job at Geffen, it wasn't as a beginner or a. I I was hired, I was one of the first women, you know, hired in the middle management position, more exalted than the secretarial kind of thing. Sure. And what, what um, year there was this? other women. Oh gosh, I'm really bad with dates. Um, <laughs> but it was in the late 80s. Gotcha. So, so I'm trying to think of, yeah, it's like the mid 80s. I, I always, it was when the White Snake record was exploding. <laughs> and, and part of the job that I was hired to do was to, was physical production. So sure. I was there to, it wasn't very creative. It was to get the records on press. And right. we were being distributed by Warner Brothers. So it was use whatever way necessary to communicate to Warner Brothers how vital it is that Geffen's records are pressed first. And then overseeing all the packaging, overseeing that there's enough covers on, in stock and and J-card full, you know, J-cards, the old cassettes and CDs and and all that was part of my job. And then it grew into a more creative job as I stayed at Geffen longer. Yeah. I ended up, you know, running the graphic arts department and and it was it David Geffen had a really interesting way of looking at employees he said for example we didn't really have titles you knew who was the president of the company you knew who what each person did they did publicity or they did promotion or whatever but he didn't like to saddle anybody with a title because it was like he said if people don't know what you're doing then you're not doing it and I loved that I thought that was really cool because it really meant that I could do anything I wanted there yeah. So that's how I started getting more creative. And I came up with a package design that I patented. And of course, Dave went crazy when he found out I patented it. So then he <laughs> bought it from me. <laughs> so just things like that wouldn't happen at your usual sort of play job, right. I think.
2: It's, it was a crazy time to be working with that company because you had bands like Aerosmith. You mentioned Whitesnake, Guns N' Roses. Like Ro- it's an incredible... Time to be involved with it. Like at the time you were working there, like you were self taught. Everything probably seemed like you were in over your head because when you're getting started, you're trying to learn all these different terms and ways to work, you know, within that field. Did it feel like, obviously, it's creatively fulfilling, but did you recognize at that time, like just how iconic that period of music was going to be?
0: I would say no. (laughs) Hmm. I really, by that time, I had a child. And she was what I was thinking, how big that was going to be. That was my real heart's focus. And so my heart's mission was doing whatever I had to do to protect her and keep her safe. And I was a single mom and and just make her life as pleasurable and as wonderful as I could make it. Hmm. So all the other stuff, it's yeah, I met a lot of celebrities. I went I went on tour with the Aerosmith, went to Hawaii with them. Steven Tyler mooned me when I was in the jacuzzi. He almost killed me actually, because I went scuba diving with him and the famous producer Bob Ezrin, who's unfortunately passed away now, but he was an expert scuba diver. So he took a bunch of us out on a boat and I had learned at the four seasons how to scuba. And so he took us out on a boat, and I wasn't ready for an 80-foot dive. But like right. I said, I was a fearless little girl, and I just, oh, how, how hard could it be going 80 feet? Yeah. And they have a, a symbol that you do stick together, and Stephen made another symbol. <laughs> when I tapped on my tank, I'm flailing here because water got in my mask, and I couldn't clear it. And luckily, Bob Ezrin, you know, came to my rescue and brought me up, but I was, that was a close call for me. Sure. But, but Stephen is a real character. I mm-hmm. feel privileged to have known him even as crazy as it was.
2: Yeah. They were at their peak and I'm curious.
0: Oh yeah. They were at their peak at that time. It was uh, really wild. Kudos to um, Tim Collins, their manager for that.
2: You had obviously struggled with like addiction and things and then working in the music industry. W- was that a, was that ever difficult working so closely no. with so many different. No, rock never bands even like,
0: crossed my mind. No. First of all, the Aerosmiths were not, they didn't do drugs, but other bands did. Sure. And a lot of the people at the record label, you'd walk into an office, there'd be a tray of Coke um, <sighs> out, but no, it, to me, it was not even, like it wasn't even tempting. If mm. I'm I have a very strong constitution or I wouldn't okay. survive what I survived.
1: Right.
0: And I think that my daughter, like I said, was my she was my North Star. She was she guided me. She kept me from I wouldn't have even thought of putting that up my nose because what would happen? what if something what if I have a heart attack? What if what if mm. I it just and it 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 was a turnoff to me. That was the old me. And I had found my I I had found finally figured out a way to love myself and for who I was. And so all the pretense, all the stuff that I had built around me, almost like a like a, a walnut has a hard shell, but inside it's soft and yummy. And if you're you're afraid to break that open because you're exposed, but what you find when you do that is you're soft and yummy. And I just, (laughs) I don't know. I just didn't want to put that shell back on. I didn't want to have to protect myself from like these evil things. I don't want to sound too preachy, but it just, I went through so much pain and why would I want to go back there? Right. And people used to talk me, oh, come on, have, have a hit or whatever. It's like,
2: and that's probably where the, one of the reasons you probably have the success that you've had is having that strong constitution because a lot of people, it's an age-old story to the point where they make movies about it, is people go to a place like LA without that constitution, without that resolve and that inner strength, and they get eaten up by the industry. Like That's a very common story tale all this time. And it's true. The fact that you were and, able to and, and it, it, that is huge. Well,
0: and it, it, it flows over into the whole Me Too discussion as well, mm. because definitely I can honestly say that I had my share of Me Too moments, mm. but I was by that time so sassy and self-assured that when the boss, you know, pushed me into a hotel room and pushed me down on the bed, I just, I laughed it off and said, get off of me. Like we got stuff to do tomorrow. Get out of here. And I, it was no big deal to me. Mm. But then three weeks later I was fired and that was heartbreaking because it was from a job I loved. But at the same time, to me, I, at that time had become so, for lack of a better word, I think spiritual
1: Mm.
0: that I felt everything happens for a reason. And at that point, my daughter was 12 and I had her being driven around by a nanny to her vocal lessons and her acting lessons and her private school. And, and I had this whole thing uh, set up this way and we were really still living paycheck to paycheck. I didn't have like a stash of money somewhere and it was devastating. Like, what What the heck am I going to do? And then you feel like you have a scarlet letter on your forehead because you were fired. And you, you can't tell people why you were fired back then because it could get around that you're not. Like, who wants to hire somebody? It was pretty devastating. But I did find the goodness in it. And I was able to see that my daughter needed me. She was at that age. She yeah. was just entering puberty. And she really needed me. And so it afforded me to start a freelance business that was actually quite successful and eventually got bought by Fox. Mm-hmm. And I ran Fox Searchlight Creative Advertising
1: right. after that. Yeah, so
0: they completely made me whole. They bought all my equipment, moved it over to Fox, bought my lease out, and that was the next chapter. So sometimes when you, you, ha- you can't stop believing in yourself. Right. I allowed myself a few days to sob and sulk and and
2: yeah. air. Something bad but... happened. You can accept it and and admit that something bad happened without hitting a road, hitting that roadblock. Yeah. You got to pick
0: yourself up and go on, oh, man. Nobody's going right. to do it for you. You have yeah. to do it.
2: Well, th- this is crazy to me because you alluded to this already, but transitioning from the music industry, which obviously you had climbed your way so high to the film industry, was it a jarring difference going from music to film or was it something where it was the same thing, just a different rapper?
0: It was very different in a lot of ways. I think that that the, you know, was fortunate enough to, to start at a, at a uh, film company, Gramercy pictures, which is now focus. And it was a small, it was a small company and it was, they, basically it was created by a joint venture between Universal Pictures and Polygram and that was like almost unheard of but they created this boutique modeled after say Miramax is the closest model maybe or Orion or some of these older right. labels too I don't even know, but to be a you know boutique indie film company mm-hmm. and it was also a dumping ground. For films that were too small. Say Universal made a picture called Days and Confused.
2: Yeah, a little movie that they, some people probably heard of.
0: <laughs> that they didn't know what to do with. Yeah, Because it didn't fit their mold. Their, They're not their, a block
2: film, at least on paper.
0: Yes, and yeah. it could have been the next this or whatever, but it, it was a good film. But it sat on the shelf for a long time because people didn't know what to do with it. And I... I think that then as we got more successful at Gramercy, we attracted better better and better filmmakers. And I, I think Days and Confuse is one of the highlights of my career, although the director hated the poster of the yeah, Stone's happy face. Yeah, um,
2: I got to ask you about that because you've talked quite a bit about the director hating the ad campaign and the ad campaign. It's one of the reasons that people know that movie exists, obviously. Like I that's know, something, but it's, it's all the stories surrounding that. The MPA battled furiously. They got a couple of the ads yanked for the, for the movie. Well, you know,
0: it, yeah. They missed a lot of the provocative lines that we had. See it with a bud. Yeah.
2: They didn't get a movie it. for oh, everyone who did inhale. Yeah,
0: That's <laughs> yeah. when they got off, caught off because Bill Clinton had come out and said, I didn't inhale I yeah. marijuana, but I didn't inhale. And I, my thought was, finally, a movie for anyone who did inhale. <laughs> da, da. And that's when they caught on. Because the, the first poster of the stoned happy face, the copy line was the film everyone will be talking about. Right. And there had just been a Miramax film came out that was called The Crying Game. And their copy line was the film everyone will be talking about. And don't give away the secret or whatever. And uh, this was the film everyone would be talking about. And they just missed it. They just didn't. And so it was really, I spoke a little bit about how it was a small unit. But there were really like five five main characters that worked at Gramercy. There was the publicist, the marketing media guy, the crazy distribution guy, the me. And then the president of the company. And so right. the five of us were really, it's, we would go and see films like Usual Suspects and we'd say, do you want to pick this up? Can you right. market this? And so we talked together and really, if we didn't think we could do it, maybe we would pass or we would say collectively, like we made a lot of decisions that way. And so a lot of the content that we released really reflected our own personalities in a way right. or, or whatever, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a funny story because that was made at Polygram 4 Grammar to Release. And uh, and when we first got the print in, it was like, they were like, you can't understand the, ta- the, the language. It, British films weren't popular yet. And so it was like, what the heck are they saying? Like, you know, we need subtitles. <laughs> right. Like in Tennessee, nobody could understand it or whatever sure and but after that it was the British invasion, and there were so many successful British films but that really I can't looking back on it, I can't believe that was even a, a problem, but we you know yeah. collectively said we're not subtitling it that will ruin this film, and I'm so glad we didn't but like another funny story is they said, what do you th-? we'd all sit around and we'd project what we thought it the film had potential was what it would gross so that we could then adjust our pna or our, our, our print and advertising mm-hmm. and and so we put a number in a hat and so i put 50 million and everybody yeah. else was like 2.5 a million nobody believed it was really going to be a breakout hit and because they they for various reasons but i said 50 million and they go oh we know whose projection this is the little junior whatever creative director like she doesn't get it our business or whatever because this was very early on in my career there but i said no you guys are wrong this film has potential i can make you a hit trailer this is going to be blah 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 so the problem was Nobody wanted to put Annie McDowell on the poster because nobody felt that she could sell a movie because of, I think, something that was dubbed some movie, I forget, King Kong or something. And, and then Hugh Grant wasn't a star yet. so Nobody knew who he was. Right. And then right before, so I had a great poster lined up. with It was iconographic. And right before, he blew up the publici- head of publicity, blew him up as a star. Got him so much publicity, and so she. So it was like from one day to the next, it was like Sam, go get on a plane, go to England, do a photo shoot with Andy and Hugh. Hmm. And so I'm scrambling to get somebody to come watch Vignette, my daughter, and I'm on a plane. It was like surreal. I'm pulling a box, and I'm in love with Hugh Grant, by the way. <laughs> I have, I was like fangirling sure. about Hugh Grant, like you can't believe. So I went to my daughter's room to pull down a suitcase. And the whole thing came down on top of me, and all these Barbie dolls came out. And I ended up going to England with two black eyes. <laughs> Not exactly <laughs> the best look for to fangirl over a few grants, right? But uh, I didn't nail my guy there. But, but I had a great photo shoot. And the poster itself, I think, was also very iconographic for the yeah. time.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of curious from the side of the creative, which you're still working in that field now, when you're sitting down looking at a movie, because like you said, it could every studio has that, whether it's Fox Searchlight or where they're taking these movies they don't know what to do with, these smaller independent movies with usually pretty unknown actors like Dazed and Confused. You have Matthew McConaughey in one of his early roles. He wasn't a massive star yet. When you're sitting down and you have to sell that movie, you're trying to create a iconic poster or cut a, like you said, a hit trailer for it. What are the ingredients that you're looking for? Cause you don't have the star power to write on at that point. How well, are you I think approaching it all that?
0: Comes, I think a lot of it comes back to the writing itself and the performances. I think that, for example, I knew all right. All right. That was just, that was, you could just feel it. Like that's going to be something that's going to resonate. And there was I was very upset because the boss who taught me so much Russell Schwartz he he would give away the he if it were up to him like he was like put every joke in the book in because we just want butts and seats and I always right. wanted to try to hold something back we he convinced me to put George Washington was into pot he was into marijuana or whatever yeah in the trailer from uh, the the stoner guy. And I thought, you can't give up that joke. It's so good in the movie. But I have to tell you, when I would go to test screenings, people who had been exposed to the marketing, or no, after the movie came out, they had been exposed to the marketing. They were almost waiting for that. Yeah. And when it happened, they were just like, it exploded. People were so excited. So I learned a lesson. there, You do give up some of the jokes, but you have to know where to draw the line. I had a very uncomfortable position with Jay Roach, I'll meet the parents because he didn't want to give away any of the cat joke with the, when the cat knocks the bot, the, the the urn down and then pees in the urn in the ashes of the grandmother or whatever. I agreed with him and I had a brawl with my boss over it, like just a knockdown fight about it because Jay Roach was like, it's a nine minute setup for that joke. Like it can't be given away. And Eventually it made its way into some TV spots after the film was released. But thankfully I did get my way on that one. We would cut 80 trailers for that movie. And we ended up with going the trailer 14 with the button from number 40 or something. <laughs> no, you... it's, a, it's a skill. It takes time to, you have to be instinctual, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. I I'm, Kind of curious, because i first heard you talk about like thriving, you thrive with change and thrive with trying to figure new things out. And obviously you've done that with, when it comes to the music industry, when it comes to the film industry and marketing, a lot has changed in the way that we see things marketed in the way we see creative put out for, especially when it comes to film trailers, things like that, social media. Now, when it comes to marketing, what are some of the biggest changes, maybe good and bad that you've seen happen in the last couple of years versus say 1993, trying to market dazed and confused?
0: Oh, so many things. I mean, (laughs) grassroots, grassroots marketing was always a big component of what we aspired to do, but grassroots back then was really different. Now grassroots, a lot of it is feeding it in social media. There was no social media for example, when we marketed Candyman 2, I, this is a bit shameful to admit, but we put up a poster of uh, an African-American man, you know, who was the Candyman, slitting the the star of the, the female star, a white woman, slitting her throat on the billboard in, in front of the courthouse where the OJ trial was taking place.
2: Oh, my God.
0: So... <laughs> It made the news. Right. But that was grassroots marketing back then.
2: You have to um, have that. You you have to find a way, especially a with it.
0: It's, I mean, it's not something I'm exactly proud of, but uh, it was a part of, but it worked. And for example, another African American film I worked on, J- Jason's Lyric, the producers of it were like, they were very skeptical of me. What's this little white girl going to market our movie? She doesn't right. know what to do with it. And I wanted it to be a Romeo, uh, an African-American Romeo and Juliet, a love story. And I didn't want to show a gun on the poster. I didn't want to show that side. So I show, I shot, did a photo shoot with the two, and Jada Pinkett was beautiful. She was naked, yeah. like but you didn't see anything. You just saw a beautiful leg and her arms wrapped around her man. And it was just a gorgeous poster. I forget who the art director was, but it was just so beautifully executed and tasteful and something really different for an African-American film at that time. And the MPAA wouldn't approve it. And I said, why? And they said, her naked thigh, her naked leg is showing. And I said, hello, showgirls. A white woman with legs. It was was stunning. And so it actually made CNN news. The director went on, got him on CNN to talk about that and how different, because, you know what I'm saying? Because there's the racial inequality. And so because of that, I think it really helped the film. So again, that's grassroots marketing in a way. I, now that I'm so into the book world and I am writing a new book right now, oh. not a, not a memoir, but a novel. And some of it's based a little bit on some of my experiences. How could it not be? Right. But, but as I'm getting more into this and I'm starting to help create book trailers and things, so creating them out of like nothing, I'm finding that really challenging and rewarding because that's where it all starts with the words and how do you execute that? And then how do you go up against people like, you know, for example, when I worked at universal Pictures, I was part of a large group of people. And I remember telling my boss that I believed in day and date releases Mm -hmm. and I was practically laughed out of the room. Yeah. And this was in 2001 or two. And I said, the reason being, because a lot of couples have babies. They want to see a first run release, but they can't go out. Right. Or between the sitter, the tickets, the popcorn, whatever. Or there are people who are confined to home and they can't go out. Yeah. And and so the technology needs to catch up. There is no reason to make so many prints. It should all be digital advertising. It all is about theaters yeah. not wanting to retrofit their theaters. Yeah. With, they want the old school film. So you saw that big change to digital technology. Now it just seems archaic that a bunch of film is from, can you imagine how many trailers were made over the years and all that film that ended up in a landfill? Right. It's disgusting. It's unconscionable. Right. And that was when I spoke earlier, and I said, David, get back me on the patent that I came up with. It was really to do away with the old 6x12 long box packaging for CDs. Yeah. Because it was obsolescent. You just threw it away. Why have it? And you know why it existed that way? Because at the record stores, they if you think about it, the racks were built when they were selling albums and they yeah. were 12 by 12. So now two six by twelve fit nicely in their existing racks. Gotcha. That's the only reason that was created. When you talk about change. Change is essential for so many reasons. Think of all the money that's been saved by not creating those long boxes. Think of all that trash that's not in landfills. Yeah. And think of all the cost for shipping because it costs a lot less to ship that a six by six than a twelve by. Six. I could go on and on about that. Like for example, the book industry is what really needs to be disrupted now because. That's what's next on the list, <laughs> yeah, because uh, like it's funny because when you try to find an agent or a publisher, they're all about what's your social media following? Did Hemingway have a social media following? <laughs> sure. like, it's just people get lazy yeah. until they come up with something new and exciting, and right. that works better Maybe.
2: It's- yeah, it's looking for the easy do you already have something? And in which case too, a lot of creators who already have the large following, I think they're going the route of self-publishing or they're going the route of making their own thing because they're realizing that they're doing the work for a lot of studios or publishers. They're building their own audience to get the permission Mm -hmm. to go under someone's label, which for a lot of cases ends up being more of a vanity thing than it is a a huge help.
0: Do you know that if you're self Self-published or indie published, you cannot get on the New York Times bestseller list.
2: Really? That yes. is it. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. So there's all these anti all the rules. Yeah. There's a lot of gatekeeping. Yeah. There are certain podcasts that won't take you unless if you're published by one of the big places. Which it's these exist for a reason because there are a lot of books that come out that aren't maybe worthy or whatever they, they yeah. don't have the time to go through it. But I think it needs to be thought.
2: You look at the movie industry and the fact that there was even a debate about can Netflix movies be or streaming movies be worthy of an Academy Award. And it's it's unreal that mm-hmm. you know they were pushing for it had to have a theatrical release in order to be able to be eligible. There's so many amazing filmmakers creating Fantastic movies that will never make it into theaters because of the gatekeeping and the costs and and the opportunity that's yeah. not there. I know we're I know we're near the end of our time, but I wanted to ask you. You mentioned the Me Too movement, and you talk a lot in interviews about emphasizing really the female gaze and giving a female perspective within your book. And I'm curious now, with the the changes we're seeing with the representation being better, we talked about race or with gender. What would you like to see when it comes to female creators, the type of work that's getting put out, what type of, because I get the sense we're not there yet where we need to be, where there is this equal representation. There is still a strong kind of male gaze, a lot of male dominated work coming out within the industry. What would you like to see change in the industry now? We've made a lot of progress, but what would you like the next steps to be when it comes to boistering the the voices of, of female creators. You
0: know, I think I think I think that there has been like a lot of really great strides in that direction. It's I don't really think I have one particular thing in, in mind that I off the top of my head could say I'd like to see. Like I know I think Reese Witherspoon has done amazing yeah. work in that arena to bring women's stories to light. I think Zibby Owens it, who's starting a new uh, publishing company and it's geared toward women. I think just women, and I think women as well, you know, have, are learning how to support one another a lot no. more than previously. I know that some of my fiercest adversaries were women. <laughs> we talk about the Me Too movement. Sure, men were grabby, but women can be just out and out, mean. You know, right. I remember being at one meeting. And this woman was trying to figure out, like, this is, this also speaks to why I wrote the book and wanted to just bear my, this is who I am, like it or not, whatever. Because she started fishing, because, like, you can't work at Universal if you don't go to college. Mm -hmm. So she goes, let me ask you, she goes, when did you have vignette? When did, where'd you go to college? How did you graduate? If you had a baby, like, blah, blah, blah. 20 questions in front of all these people. And, and it was really like i think stop yes i got to a very high place i mean i'm i won't even say publicly what i was making it was a ridiculous right. amount of money yeah. but like maybe i could have gone further if i wasn't afraid that i was going to be outed for you sure. know not being who i you know claimed to be they asked me did you go to college i said yes i went to college royal college of art in london yes i went there i was a nude model for the painters Okay, so I didn't lie, but these little white lies were hovering sure. around me. And so they were keep they were holding me back because right. I was afraid someone was going to discover the truth and I would everything would fall apart, like a jenka. Someone pulls yeah. on something and the whole thing collapses. I but I, I think women have really I don't know if it's because I've become such you know so involved with mentoring so many young women myself. But I find that women that I meet in business are a lot more connecting in unique ways. Like I'm really finding that in the book industry particularly. Mm-hmm. I'm meeting so many women authors and like I'm trying to help them with their books, with trailers. They're trying to help me with whatever piece that I'm missing in publicity or whatever. And so it's, it's really lovely to see that. I'd just like to see more of it. Right. And I don't really know, not being an from an African-American perspective, but I did make a documentary about Club License to Operate with my partner, James Lepetsky. He directed it. And it was very difficult to get that film to be seen and heard. It's an excellent documentary mm. about how former gang members who are released from prison become part of the solution in their communities because they know how to diffuse violence between gangs. Hey, let's talk this out. They become mediators and they're trusted mediators because they were gang members once themselves. And the, the the movie is about that. It never saw distribution. It, it, it wow. was mired in all kinds of controversy. And I can't, I don't really want to go into that, but I think that Yes, the African-American experience is so much more represented now in so many delightful films. It's interesting that Will Smith's Serena Williams vehicle came out um, this past weekend on HBO Max. I don't know how it did on HBO Max, but people didn't go to the theater. Yeah. Now, does are people not going to the theater because of COVID? Or are they not going to the theater because they're afraid they're going to get shot at? So I think yeah. our problems are really bigger right now than whether women are represented properly or whether men are repre- or African Americans are represented properly. We we gotta heal the world first. Yeah. This woman cinematographer was shot on set yeah. recently, yeah. and there goes a bright light in the uh, a woman filmmaker. It was probably, she was probably on a trajectory to become a director herself. And so guns need to go. I think I'm more apt to want to get on a fence post and nail that out before I complain about not being represented as a woman. Yeah,
2: Yeah, there's fundamental cultural issues that.
0: And they're so huge and they need to be. They need to be addressed and people need to come together and just decide that, you know, enough is enough. And is Hollywood partially responsible? Do they glamorize some of this behavior? I don't know the answers, but I do know that guns kill people. And so,
2: yeah, yeah, it's difficult and definitely raises that whole story, which I'm sure we could chat about at length. It's there's so many, there's just so many pieces to that where, you know, and I think the takes on it, there's when we're sacrificing safety for the sake of a cool shot or sacrifice, like there's no art worth that, you know, and it's, to me, that's where I keep going back to. And I I just interviewed Alex Vincent, who's been working on the new Chucky series. And he posted, he posted behind the scenes clip from the series and they were using guns with no blanks, no anything. It was all digitally added. And we, we live in a time where you can do a convincing scene with a gun you can. without being anywhere near real ammunition or real blanks and it doesn't look there can be janky gun effects but it, it doesn't have to look that way it doesn't it can,
0: have to be and that's that's what we, keep, we were talking about that's the thread of what was go- going on through this whole interview is about change yeah change is possible if i could change from being a little teenage runaway into Hollywood executive and, and owning my own company. It's if records can become available on Spotify and people can still make money and it's digital delivery is so possible and there's so much less obsolescence and we need to worry about the planet and all this and film can be delivered digitally now and it goes on and on. And let's talk about guns let's talk about making movies where you don't need guns, where guns aren't even in it. Let's talk about it. Why can't we write stories that don't need guns? (laughs) But digital guns are certainly better than the real thing. It's just really, I like a good spaghetti Western like anybody else. So I'm not saying get rid of guns completely, but it's just, it's just frustrating when you know that it is possible.
2: There's tools that exist to eliminate danger.
0: (laughs) When change is possible change. And uh, and it goes to a drug addict or a gun on set.
2: Yeah, there's, yeah, that's where I think we just can get to is you've you mentioned all the different changes, like there's opportunities to safely do these. And yeah, some stories do some stories require a firearm in the story. Sure. Does it need to be real? And it, and it just... With any of these situations and all the different cultural things happening, you just always find yourself saying, when is it going to be enough to say, let's change it? It wasn't when the Brandon Lee situation happened, that should have been enough to change. I'm
0: still not frankly. over Brandon Lee. Yeah. I, ran, I, I was at a party at Zippy Ellen's through a party for her book launch and his daughter was there and mm-hmm. I just started to cry when I saw her. Yeah, It, it just feels like it was yesterday. It's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, is what it is. It's just, but you know, I think, I think that it's the, the world just needs to embrace each other. Every story is valuable. Every, I think I'm, well, I just think that the African American story needs to be told in a more, I think, this critical race theory thing and all this kind of stuff that people are so. Afraid of, what are they afraid of Yeah. to admit that they made some mistakes? Yeah. Again, that goes back to my book, Blind Pony. I said I made some mistakes, Yeah. but I learned from it and I became better. But so you don't have to be afraid of, of having made mistakes. You yeah. have to own up to it and grow and change and right. become a better person. Anybody alive today, they weren't alive when they brought the slaves over. They didn't have anything <laughs> to do with that. It was a mistake. It was something that was colonialism or whatever the heck. Yeah. But it's, it has nothing to do with the African-Americans that are living in America now who are giving so much of part of our culture.
1: Yeah.
0: It's like it's, we got hip hop, we got jazz, we've got, they've given us so much. Why do they have to keep giving and we just keep taking and taking? It doesn't make any sense. And women's rights too. women keep giving and they keep taking and taking.
2: Yeah. Yeah. There's so many changes that that have to happen. And that's like you've said. That's a theme of your book. And, And I think you hit the nail on the head. There's this shame in admitting that the mistake was made when I think I don't think anyone needs to be blamed for mistakes that were made. I think it's how you respond to realizing you made the mistake. Can you change it? Because once, once you do it a second and third and fourth time, it's not a mistake. It's a decision. And I, I you know,
0: I, I just, I just released my audio book for blind pony just came out and it's, I'm just thrilled with the response because I, it took me a long time to be able to read that book and not because Mm. I was busy or whatever. It was just too emotional. Yeah. And there's one part in the book where my voice really literally cracks and the editor kept it in because mm. I just couldn't get through it. And it's when my mother gives me this bowl and she tells me that she made my grandfather get on his knees and pray to God for forgiveness. So he go to heaven. And and I just said it just took my breath away. Did he know mm. does she know what I what my life has been like? From that moment, you know, from age 14 till now. And she's handing me this bowl. And I think I was like 20, 27 at the time, 28. And did she know that it almost killed me what happened Mm -hmm. to me? And I just said, but who am I to stand in judgment? Mm. So thank you for the bowl. And that was all I could say. It's there's, she felt shame, but forgiveness is such a big part of growing and growth and change you have to be able yeah i cannot say that i forgive my grandfather for what he did to me but i don't have to i can let it go right you know i can move on past that and share my story and hope that somebody can find somebody else can find strength from it yeah
2: I know many definitely are, and I appreciate you being so transparent and and sharing your journey openly. And I know, obviously for those listening, I definitely encourage them to pick up a copy of Blind Pony and to hear your story in your own words. And even beyond that, hearing your other interviews, sharing so openly. And I know on my other show, when I'm interviewing survivors of different abuses, like every single time an episode goes out, there's so many people that reach out and say, I don't resonate exactly, but some element is I thought I was the only one that experienced that. And there's a lot of power in in sharing those stories. And it well, it's really
0: wonderful. It's wonderful that you're doing that. It's very courageous of you because I know I was on a show in Kentucky or somewhere hmm. and a woman happened to be in the break room. She's at a very high level position, but she happened to be in a break room and she caught the, the television. In her interview. And she reached out to me on LinkedIn and told me like, this is my story. And she had so much shame, she couldn't talk about it. And I said, you need to find someone to talk to. I'm certainly not a psychologist or whatever, but shame is the worst kind of feeling to have. And you don't, we don't need that in our society. We don't need to feel shameful. Yeah. You can regret, but Things, but you need to recover. You need to go on and find what's going to light you up.
2: I know we're, I know we're at the end of our time here, and and even a little bit over. So I appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me. I love ending these on a quick uh, random round just to get a couple quick answers if you have just a minute, and uh, and then we'll close out here. But I'm curious, in light of our conversation of change of different people working in the industry, first off, who do you think is the most Underrated filmmaker that you see working today, right now?
0: Oh my gosh, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one. Several names come to mind for different reasons, but oh boy, I don't. I love. <gasps> that's a good one. We talked about Richard Linklater a little bit, yeah. and I think I don't think he's underrated, but I I think that like Boyhood is one of the most brilliant films ever made. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't think that gets enough recognition uh, right. for what an accomplishment that was.
2: Right. Um, and what is yeah. what a unique accomplishment.
0: <laughs> and when you put that in, in the mix of all the other things he's done, and like I said, he doesn't particularly like me, but yeah. but I, I think Boyhood is just, a br- just such a brilliant film on so many levels. I'm sure there's a lot cooler answers that <laughs> people have given you, but off the top of my head, I don't think that was really it was nominated but it didn't yeah, win it was, it
2: was nominated yeah
0: it was underseen underappreciated undervalued what it took to have that vision yeah it's extraordinary and mm. I I think he's he's definitely an 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 American treasure
2: What what's a movie that fans of yours would be surprised that you enjoy
0: another another stuff one I find something I'm very polyanish. I find something to like in almost everything I watch sure. I can't it, it's hard for me to critique talent. Like for me to say, like that's a surprise. Like I'm such a sponge. I like, I like everything from a Buddha soup to a good heist movie. I yeah. like everything, so I don't think anybody would surprise. I probably lived half of these movies.
1: <laughs>
2: right <laughs> on right. my journey. Well, with that in mind, what do you think is the best decade of film history? Do you have a, a decade of filmmaking that you find yourself revisiting most frequently?
0: I'd say I like a lot of the uh, French New Wave. Hmm. I, I constantly go back to that period in time, and I think that I think it's just so charming and like creative in a way that some of the stories has different layers, maybe a little bit more contextual storytelling that I feel is missing in a lot of American films.
2: And my last question is, what do you think is the best piece of advice that you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who's listening to this? So someone stepping into the film industry in 2021, almost 2022, what would be your biggest piece of advice to them stepping into that world?
0: I know that a piece of advice that was given to me from Steven Soderbergh, so I can share that because that's a little more meaningful than what big advice I can give. But when I was talking to Stephen about some ideas I had, he said, the secret is just commence. Just do it. Just mm. start. And once you start, you'll, fi- you'll find your way. But if you don't start, guess what? It won't happen. So it, as hard as it can be or as daunting a task as it can be. I mean, like I know for my book, I just his words resonated in my head over and over because I, I was terrified to write my book in some ways. and. Once I started, it just was like automatic writing, and I it just came out. So, yeah. so a lot of books go through rounds of editing and you know revisions with prose and all that. My book doesn't have that. It's not even line edited. That's why there's a few typos in it, which I apologize for. There's a new edition coming out with no typos. There's only a few. But yeah, just commence and do what's in your heart. Tell the story you want to tell.
2: Yeah, no. I've been watching a lot of Steven Soderbergh lately, and he's someone I could easily put in the underrated category. But he's someone who constantly, from film to film, I feel like redefines who he is and redefines oh, the love, type of movie. I
1: love Steven. Yeah, I, yeah.
0: I was very. I've worked on almost all his movies, and wow. I, I just going back to King of the Hill, and I think King of the Hill was so underrated. I love mm.
1: that movie.
0: He's a brilliant he's a brilliant auteur and I don't think of him as underrated because he did win the Academy award for traffic and, right, and he was nominated for Aaron Brockovich. And that was during, you know, time I was very close with him. Mm. We're, we both got married on the same day. Like our lives have aligned at different times in, in over the years. And I consider him a really good friend. So oh. I, yeah, I, I didn't pick him as, the underrated because it's a little biased, but sure. But yeah, no, he's somewhat underrated. Everything he, t- I love everything he does. He's just uh, versatile. He...
2: Yeah. He's it's wild that you watch a movie, let them all talk. And you're like, this is from the person that did oceans 11 or you watch Logan lucky. So out of left field and he's just in magic. Mind. Have, have you yeah. ever
0: seen, have you ever seen Schizopolis?
2: I haven't yet. No.
0: Oh my goodness that was like Stephen having a nervous breakdown. Hmm. So I would say good advice to a young filmmaker would be watch Schizopolis and know that his next movie was the Jennifer Lopez, George Clooney movie. What's it called? Uh, Oh oh
2: man. I need some game uh, show music for some of these stumpers.
0: Um, Yeah. But it was the film right after come to me in a second, but he, he had this total flop that people thought he was crazy schizopolis. It was just, and he was really on the edge. I went to the screening. He invited me to screening at the universal lot. And I got there two minutes late and the door was locked. Yeah. And I couldn't get in <laughs> to see it. You know, so And so he was like, literally, I think he was just at a point where there's something people refer to as the sophomore jinx. And yeah. that was, that was King of the Hill. And then he made the underneath. And and that wasn't really, that didn't really go anywhere either. But then he, Casey Silver from Universal got him the script for Out of Sight and said, this is the film for you to really reignite your career. So another good piece of advice is take advice (laughs) when it's given, because those films were good, but they weren't anything that was going to put him back on the map, so to speak. And out of sight did. And then his career was off to the races and I don't think he's ever looked back. Right. Schizopolis is a trip, So I don't even know if you can find it, but I'll definitely have to track it
2: down. That's my homework for for today is to find it and uh, (laughs) check it out. But, but thank you so much for spending so much time with me today and talking through this. And again, for anybody who's listening, I definitely encourage you to pick up a copy of blind pony and really get to read more of Samantha's story. It's really powerful. And Samantha, thank you again for uh, one, all your contributions to film first and foremost, but also for taking the time to share so openly about, about your career and your own personal life. There's a lot of power in both.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.